Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And of course, we couldn't do it without the hardcore legend himself, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? I'm doing great. I'm about as far away from the United States as you could possibly be here, right here in uh, Melbourne, Australia. We just finished our uh, Australia leg of the tour. And now I have this day off, and then tomorrow we head to New Zealand, where I have never been or performed before. Wow, a first. That's pretty rare for well, you, right? You go somewhere you've never been? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love Australia. They've always been supportive. Uh, last night during the meet and greet, I met at least a dozen people who've been to every event I've done. You know, three different tours, and also went to the promotional tour I did for WWE in, I think, 2001. So uh, these are some people, you know, some really diehard fans. They know their stuff. They're passionate about it. Uh, a little too passionate about their sports once in a while, if I may uh, express some uh, fisticuffs that went on at the uh, Foley show last night. Are you okay with that? Uh, near fisticuffs. So uh, definitely uh, upending the, uh, the, the uh, harmonious nature of the meet and greet. And luckily, this was at a club that uh, it was a top comedy club in all of uh, Australia, the Comics Lounge. And they diffused the situation. Uh, It would have been easy. You know, I heard some of the things that were going on. and It kind of threw things off for about 10 minutes because everyone else is in this joyous mood. and These two guys really want to go at each other. So afterwards, I said, what the heck happened here of all things? The two guys were best friends, but they had attended an AFL game where mm. they are bitter rivals. They got into a fist fight before the show over the AFL game. That's Australian Rules football game. They got so sick of each other that they decided they needed to cut the line <laughs> for the VIPs, which you don't do. And we're demanding they get in early. So this is the type of situation, I think, where they will regret their actions. Yeah. Uh, but it was two best friends getting in one fist fight on the precipice of a second fist fight because one's team had won and the other one did not. And uh, so because they were sick of each other and did not want to stand in line together anymore, they demanded to go up to the front. We're not allowed and uh, a fisticuffs nearly took place. Just uh, a little, I'd say it's a little bit ridiculous. That's the point where you're taking your sports uh, a little too seriously. Where was Yerpel when we needed her? You know, Yerpel, Yerpel could have diffused that situation anyway. No problem. No problem. Yeah. Uh, and also, the reason she went with Yerpel is uh, to honor her uh, purple belt in Jeet Kune Do. I just that? I just made that up completely. So, uh, <laughs> well, something you didn't make up is, man, you're doing a lot of good while you're down yonder, as we say here in Alabama. I saw uh, one heck of a donation made the other day. Tell everybody what's going on. <laughs> yeah. The first you have to keep in mind, the Australian dollars, that's about 70 cents on the U.S. dollar. So we raised uh, $10,000 in seven shows auctioning off the shirts off my back. And these are the flannels and the, um, the T-shirts. Last night hurt me a little bit because I'd been without my bag for 10 days. <clears throat> I showed up in Australia basically with the clothes on my back, and I had to end up getting another couple of pairs of underwear. I had to start using from the 
uh, Foley, the wanted dead pile. And so when my shirts finally arrived, I was so happy to have one, uh, two shirts that my daughter Noelle had given me, one being uh, Mar from Home Alone, who I will argue is uh, uh, up there with the most extreme hardcore legends we've seen on screen. And every bit the menacing monster that Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers is, just, just my humble opinion, because he took such unparalleled punishment. So I love that shirt and also a shirt that she gave me that says, uh, be kind on it. Um, and I, I put that up in social media. So I think people knew I liked it. Um, but I, that's what I was wearing. And I was rehearsing for my duet of summer nights, uh, to honor Olivia Newton John. <laughs> because we you. don't, we, <laughs> we don't oh just gosh. talk about graphic injuries. We, we cover the classics and the promoter said, he is 4.30 in the morning two days ago, and uh, he's got no sleep. He's cranky. I'm operating on no sleep. Those are the worst days. You just try to get through them. You get to the next city. You, know, you have no sleep. You try to pull it together and be a professional. And at 4.30 in the morning, he's got his bag, and from behind, he hears me going, So I loved Olivia Newton-John. And um, I just had this idea that I wanted to do something to honor her above and beyond explaining to anybody who gets tongue tied, you know, at the meet and greet table that, uh, hey, I know how you feel because I met Olivia Newton-John, which is a true story. And my wife marveled how I couldn't put more than a couple words together. But anyway, we've been um, doing the shirt donations and they've been going for, you know, over a thousand dollars Australian a night and then on consecutive nights the one guy who's rude and uh, you know selfish by yelling stuff out the guy who I've got to stop and I think you've seen me do this Conrad I don't I don't browbeat them I don't right. make them part of the show I don't try to get a laugh I just I just point out that everybody has made a sacrifice and money and time some people got babysitters uh, I'm pretty sure if we ask everyone here, not a single soul would say they came to hear you. And that's a little bit humbling, right? Like it's not yeah. funny. It's just, okay. Uh, okay. I, you're kind of shaming them into behaving. Uh, the second guy was even worse where I had to take away his beverage. Oh, wow. And yeah. Yeah. I, I, you do not at this state, you do not to be need to be drinking this. He had what looked to me like to be a big pint of Guinness. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll take a drink. You know, I haven't had a, uh, done, done, had a little swig on stage in a couple of years. And as soon as I take a swig, I'm like, that's not Guinness. That's a really strong Jack and Coke filled to the top of like a 32 ounce oh, wow. glass. And he tried to sneak in another one. And I took that from him too, which point it looked like a hurt kid. But on both those nights, when it came to the, uh, <laughs> the shirt up my back auction, these guys were throwing up their hands. And going with the biggest bids of the whole tour. Wow. So the first guy was $1,500. The second guy was, he went $2,500. And then so I, I take off my stuff and I come back and I've got that, uh, you know, that button down Hawaiian Santa shirt that I've worn on the show one or two yeah. times. And he asked me if I will sell that for $500. So yes, I will. Uh, so look, uh, don't judge a book by its cover, you know, 
he's probably a good guy who uh, had a little bit too much to drink, but in the end, he made a good decision. It's going to help out a lot of wildlife. So uh, I've lost my phone. I don't know if you know that. I, I highly advise not leaving your phone behind in the car service <laughs> in Chicago when you go to Australia. Also, uh, you were there. You were on hand when I had the Twitter hack. Yes, and and that got resolved. But then, because the Twitter was hacked, now uh, a Gmail decides that they need to make sure it's really me, and I proceed to fail my own security questions. Oh, <laughs> twice, and they cut me off. So now I'm going to uh, I'm going to uh, Australia as far as you can be around the globe. I don't have a phone. I don't have an email. I, they lose my bag for 11 days. I just got it back yesterday. I've got the shirts on my back. It turns out the 3X underwear that someone buys for you in Australia is not 3X underwear in Australia. So I'm being pinched in ways that I haven't been pinched oh. in years. But nonetheless, having an amazing time and uh, raising money and, oh, my goodness, people buy merchandise here. Uh, it's, it's on a level that, I, that I've never seen. And the shows are going really well. I'd say the one I did in uh, Melbourne on Saturday Saturday night was among the top five shows I've done in terms of just enjoying myself and having amazing reactions. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, congratulations. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you're having fun, and it's pretty awesome to hear. Literally, it's Murphy's Law-type situation. Everything's yeah. gone wrong. You're still pretty positive about it. <laughs> I, uh, I got yeah. that from our mutual friend, Barry, who called me over and over and over. And he never does that. But I was <laughs> okay. And it was back to back to back. And when I finally get him, he's like, Mick's lost his phone and he's locked out of his email and he's in Australia. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, how do I communicate with him? He's like, I don't know. But when <laughs> get something from him. It's really him. I'm like, okay, got it. I appreciate the heads up. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was Olivia Newton-John getting me through. I, I Whenever you're down in life, this goes for everyone, not just you, uh, Conrad. Just think yourself. Boom, 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 I love it. We did the duet last night, and uh, it just so happened that the uh, uh, manager of the club knew a burlesque dancer. She showed up. It was like showed up five minutes before I went on stage, and I said, oh, hi, thanks for being here. You want to sit down? And she sat down. We had the laptop. We went on one one knee each. We went over the song once. And I thought, like, oh, she's got some pipes. And she went out there and crushed it. And uh, it, it was just it was just a lot of fun. It was it was a lot of fun. And um, I think if people know that I'm enjoying myself, they're going to enjoy themselves. I'm 100%. Totally agree. Yeah, And uh, I hope you guys enjoy yourselves today because we're going to be doing something we haven't talked about a lot, something kind of recent relative to some of our other topics. Uh, this is the uh, the Build for Vengeance, a.k.a. Night of Champions in 2000. Yeah. So about 15 years ago or so, and you've been involved with WWE programming uh, since around the WrestleMania time, mm -hmm. uh, where you were hired back after getting fired the summer before, following the feud with Flair and the whole kiss my ass stuff with Vince and Molina, which I'm sure we'll get right. at the time. But you were away all this time because of your work on your newest book, Hardcore Diaries, and all the mm -hmm. promotional stuff that you know was involved with that. What was your contractual status with the company at this time, to the best of your recollection? I think I, uh, I had signed, uh, which I thought was a heck of a contract. It's actually the contract I encouraged Jericho to sign. Uh, it's a 
part-time contract that pays you almost like a full-timer. And now, you know, since then, there have been a lot of guys who come in as part-timers who have done really well. Jericho made the determination he wanted to be, that lack of a better word, all in. Like he didn't need, he, he appreciated what I had done, but he wanted to be a full-time wrestler. But uh, uh, I think coming off, I, you know, you have to go back into where I've left WWE under less than ideal circumstances. So from like uh, 2003, for a couple of years, 2003, 2004, I went from having not done any wrestling shows whatsoever because I wasn't contractually allowed to. Mr. McMahon was nice enough to let me out of my contract a year early at my request with the caveat that I could not do anything in wrestling uh, for that final year. And I was okay with that. And then even for months to follow, I would be asked, hey, uh, someone wants to do a signing. How can they get in touch with you? And I'd just say, uh, they can't. You know, I, you know I'm, not, I'm not really interested in doing them. And then when I did start doing them, I would do them strictly for charity, for the Marty Lyons Foundation, for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, and then I did an independent show where I was a referee. And I realized that, you know, having some fun and walking away <laughs> – with a healthy payoff, it's not the worst thing in the world. Right. And I went a different direction. I went from doing none to being like, you have money, I'll be there. And it got to where I was working with, I don't want to say they were shady and that they were bad people, but they were people who did not have the finances to be putting on the shows. And uh, a couple checks bounced. And the a turning point for me, Conrad, was when I get to this event outside of Chicago, it's in the back of a baseball, like a baseball lesson academy type place. And it's okay if your baseball academy is in the back of a, a shopping center because people who want to take the lessons will find it. But that doesn't mean it's the place to run a wrestling show where not a soul can see it when they pass by. All of these uh, independent shows are limited in what they can do to promote. So I walk in, and there's about 25 people in there. And I just said to the guy, I said, uh, how are you going to pay me? And he said, we're, we're going to pay you off the gate. And I looked around, and I said, we, we, we both know there's not enough money here to pay me. And then the guy got a little like uh, you know, uh, concerned. He said, um, I don't know what to do. Uh, the only thing I can think of is to drive to my grandmother's house and get the money from her. And I said, we need to take that ride. <laughs> like I was as close to being a gangster as I've ever been. As I pressured this guy to drive to his grandmother's house and give me a sweaty wad of bills. And uh, it was on the way home. Whoa, whoa, driving. Whoa, whoa. Oh, <laughs> yeah. not on the way home. I got to know you go into grandma's house. You reach yeah, I did. You reach I did, in the yeah. pants, you pull the sock out, <laughs> and you ask grandma hard way or easy way, right? It's something like that. Basically, yeah. <laughs> and then what I thought was the strangest thing is uh, she was a little bit short, uh, so she offered to give me some blue chews, uh, and I didn't know what they were, and she said they're like a hot tag for your wiener. So. <laughs> <laughs> it is said, by the way this is sponsored by blue chew and i can't imagine what grandma she was in for the ride of her life 
You know, <laughs> Mrs. Foley's baby boy made her an honest one. Conrad, I heard that at least three times a day at every meet and greet. A hot tag, like a hot tag for your wiener. So <laughs> we, they, people were like, they were saying, "I love the uh, love the show," and then what they would go on to prove they love the show is saying. It's like a hot tag for your wiener. I was like, you have been listening. That's right. Um, so this also followed there. If you were following wrestling lore at this time, there was an, uh, uh, a wrestling convention in Indianapolis. Uh, the promoter picked me up while the show was going on. And I said, how's it going? He said, oh, man, it's going amazing. When he knows it's not going amazing. Right. Like, I believe he's lying to me, hoping that it, you know, uh, that it, uh, uh, that it becomes into yeah. existence. Yeah. Yes. He's speaking success into existence. And when I get there, there's only like a hundred fans and there's just about as many wrestlers gotta be 50 wrestlers. He's clearly overbooked this thing. Nobody's doing it. I, I had a little bit of a line and I made one of, one of only two, two people with a line. And, uh, so when I wanted to talk to him about, the uh, likelihood of any of these guys getting paid. He could not be reached because he was locked up in uh, a room, uh, curled up in the fetal position. Oh, no. And I just started thinking, like, I don't need to be a party to this type of thing. The guy did go home to his mom's house and wrote checks on his mom's checkbook. Everyone got paid. None of the checks bounced, but it obviously appeared a little dicey. And I remember thinking to myself when I was driving home, that despite the fact, you know, I'd left under less than ideal circumstances with WWE, I thought, I thought, I may have even said this out loud, but I know the thought was, I know a guy in Connecticut whose checks never bounce. Yep. <laughs> and that's when I called him up with the idea of doing like a three-year deal that called for three matches a year. And um, he went and he went for it. And it was under that contract that I did the, uh, uh, the, the WrestleMania match uh, with Rick and Batista and Randy. And then the, uh, the next uh, big, big follow-up match with Randy. And so this match, 2007, fell under that contract. It was one of uh, three matches I had to do in 2007 to fulfill that contract. So let's talk about... Uh getting back into ring shape, you know, when, when you're trying to, you know, I I'm making tours and for my book and trying to promote that thing. And I know I've got a handful of matches to do, and now I'm going to be headlining a pay-per-view. Is there a regiment where, or do you think, Hey, it's five guys. Maybe it won't be that bad. Or what's the thinking? Well, in this case was a combination of both. I had taken quite a bit of pride into getting into ring shape before these comeback matches. I mean, I think you can look at, um, the way I looked uh, when I took on Randy Orton at Backlash and yep. see that, okay, this guy's lost a lot of weight. Yep. It wasn't just a diet. I mean, I really had uh, five, six months to work on it. I went down from 330 to 260. Uh, it was the lightest I'd been in a long time. And I really think that the, uh, uh, the work showed. Um, unfortunately, in 2007, and I'm going to blame this on Al Snow, Al Snow was a practitioner of something called 100 rep training. And the theory behind it is uh, you would start out with light weights 
uh, and you, you continue with the lightweights, especially on something like a leg press, where you start burning out and you start feeling the lactic acid build up, but because the white the weights are light, you can still kind of gut through it and you can get to your hundred reps, but the last 30 or 40 reps are going to be excruciating to where you got a major burn and your legs are a different you know, way. You train your legs a different way than you did your upper body. You could train them to exhaustion. You could do more reps. I mean, it was never a textbook example. And, and now the science is different than it was when I was reading up on that stuff in the 80s and the 90s. But the idea is you can fight through the pain because of the uh, limited amount of weights. <clears throat> and I would get off that weight machine. This is one of five or six pieces that we had brought to our garage on Long Island after uh, my wife and I moved from Florida. The State Department uh, needed the land and we gracefully eased out of the gym business. <laughs> we did have a good gym, a good functioning, cool gym in Navarre, Florida. Uh, I wanted something to be able to fall back on and then the business just took off. And I was like, I don't think we're going to need something to fall back on, like if we're right. wise with our money. Um, but it was a great place for people to work out. We were in between an Air Force base, a Marine base, and uh, a Navy base. And so most of the uh, constituents were people who had bases, who had uh, uh, equipment and gyms on base, but they liked it. it, had a good atmosphere. It was a really cool place to work out. It was really unique. Uh, but when the state department bought our, uh, uh, bought our gym, uh, we donated a lot of, um, a lot of the equipment to a local YMCA. Uh, we donated a lot of equipment to, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the place. Um, in Long Island city, there was a, a Borden Avenue veterans residence house. So it's kind of like for homeless veterans. Uh, uh, so they pretty much had a full scale gym overnight. And, uh, I held on to maybe five or six pieces of equipment, including this leg press. And you get off that leg press and you can barely walk, right? Cause your legs are so sore. But one day I'm doing it around the 20th rep. I feel something go, uh, down like my, my lower back. And it feels like someone has found a way to tap into the inside of my leg. It is pouring scalding water oh. down my right leg. So I have, I have injured my back, but I continue to do the uh, 60 reps. And when I'm walking up the hill uh, in my driveway, uh, I thought, oh, I'm I'm, uh, I'm effed, you know, if I was another guy, I would drop that F-bomb and I'd yeah. be, uh, you know, justified in doing it. And by the time I got to the house, I realized I'm, I'm in deep trouble. Um, so I, I went to the post office to try to drop off something and I found myself shuffling back and forth on my feet during the 10 minutes I was there just to take the excruciating pain off my lower back. I got home, probably sped home. By the time I was five minutes in, I had I had had three or four drinks, like two, three beers, a couple shots. And my wife went, "What's going on?" I was like, "I'm I'm in incredible pain." And the uh, the person I felt worst for 
And the scenario is my daughter, Noelle, 2007, she would have been 14. She's under the impression her dad was some type of type tough guy. And now I'm reduced to helplessness to the point where the guy, uh, uh, they have to take me to the hospital laying down in the back. We had an SUV at the time. And so I go to the uh, hospital and uh, I can tell they're skeptical because pain medication was a real issue at that time, right? Guys creating reasons to come in there, people hitting themselves in the thumb with a hammer, going in looking for uh, pain medication. So the guy says, oh, okay, what is your pain on a level of one to 10? I said, 10. He goes, no, no, what, what is your, he looks at me real cynically. I said, it's a 10. And then he goes to start asking it again. I said, let me put it this way. When I was in Germany in 1994 and lost my ear, I was asked what my level of pain was. And I said it was a four. So when I'm telling you this is a 10, I'm telling you this is the worst pain I've ever been in in my entire life. And the guy gave me like Tylenol, oh. Tylenol, and then misdiagnosed me. He said, you have uh, uh, a pulled muscle. And I said, with all due respect, I've had pulled muscles. This is not a pulled muscle. And so I went on my own and I had a uh, MRI done that was just disastrous, just freaking disastrous. I remember uh, talking to uh, the expert in Pittsburgh about the diagnosis. He goes, uh, it's a bad MRI. And I said, well, what is it? He goes, uh, it, it's a bad MRI. And it was one of those, you know, you get what you pay for. This is, uh, you know, this is <laughs> like my bills coming up, <laughs> you know, time to be paid. And I didn't realize that pain was going to, it was going to be quite that steep. And wow. I'd say one of the most down moments, uh, we'll go with the two downers and then we'll, we'll try to get happy here in a little bit, uh, was when I had a, a surgery set in Pittsburgh. And then the guy called up, he goes, listen, he goes, I don't think we can help you. He said, you've just got too many issues. You've got the neurological issues. You've got the structural issues. There was another issue. He said, there's no guarantee that anything we do will help at all. And so you could say, and then depression set in. Uh, the other time was when I went to get my, um, so we're jumping ahead from 2007 to 2011. And in between, I had the uh, TNA stint. But when I did come back to uh, WWE, I had the full physical done. And I, uh, I measure in at six foot one and a quarter. And I knew I'd been a legit six foot four. Oh. So I was really, I was really baffled by that. Right. And uh, I, I said, I used to be six, four and okay. And you got another couple hours of tests going. He takes the uh, x-ray of my back and I see that my back is pulling. It's just hooking to the left. It's just making a turn. And I said, what the heck is that? He said, that's acquired scoliosis. Oh. That is the gradual bending of your spine from favoring injuries. And I said, would that account for the two and three quarters inches that I, I lost? And he said, absolutely. So that night I drive home. Uh, my daughter's out by the mailbox when I arrive and she looks at me with her eyes bright like, she nods her head like, do they go good? And all I did is I just shook my head. I just shook my head. I thought, uh, you know, life, 
uh, what have I done to myself? Like, this is even more than I bargained for. I've got a spine that's inoperable. I've got, uh, uh, you know, scoliosis making me two and a half inches, two and three quarters inches shorter. Uh, there's no help for me whatsoever until DDP yoga came along. Really? Yeah. I, the, the strengthening, the lengthening. I also had a personal trainer who I'd known in uh, high school who got me started moving. She said, I'll get you moving, but you got to be able to put in the work. Got in the pool. This is when I had that other dramatic weight loss from uh, three, uh, 338 to 288 by the time I got into uh, uh, the ring for WrestleMania. Uh, 2016 and then I went on to drop another 50 and now I've put all that back um, so I've got to find a way to get back into that same mindset where I'm going to get out there every single day and find something to do and move even if it's in the pool even if it's combining DDP motions in the pool because uh, COVID kicked my butt in such a major way and I'm just so shocked to see how much strength I'd lost you know, going from being a 45 push-up guy to a three push-up guy. Wow. Uh, uh, like dramatic loss of strength. So if there's ever a time when someone out there has wanted to kick my butt, now's probably the time because I don't have a lot in the way of uh, strength these days. But I'll get it back. A strength of character, yes, Conrad. Strength of body, eh, I've been stronger in the past. I realize we've gone on a segue, but this does give you – an idea of where I was in 2007. So I was not properly trained. Right. And yet was, so I was very grateful for the five man format, which would uh, not exploit my weaknesses the way that a singles match would. I want to remind everybody this five way is between yourself, King Booker, John Cena, Bobby Lashley, and Randy Orton for the WWE title. I mean, pretty impressive that you haven't exactly been a regular performer. And now here you are in a main event for a title. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's gotta be pretty cool to know that, Hey man, there's still a lot of faith and confidence in me. Yeah, it was. And it was a really, it was a fun concept for the idea because every one of the five participants was a former WWE champion. Uh, the one thing in the, in the course of the booking, the week before, uh, I had this match. I had a match with Umaga where he basically squashed me. Yeah. And look, I'm not somebody who cares that much about wins and losses as long as they make sense. That one did not seem to make sense a week before the, uh, the, uh, the pay-per-view because I think if anything, uh, the fans should have been given the idea that, Hey, uh, this guy's been out of it. He's a danger at any time. He could win this thing. I don't understand. I mean, I do understand building up Umaga and getting him a win, uh, but I, I did not think that was the time to be doing it, especially with a guy going into a pay-per-view main event the next week. All right, boys and girls, let's take a time out to talk about a great new sponsor we have here on the program, Mood. And man, they have something I didn't even believe was real, THCA flower. That's right. Mood is known for their federally legal THC but now they're adding their most potent product yet to the lineup, introducing the hemp-based THCA flower, the future of legal THC. Try it along with all of Mood's other amazing offerings like Delta 8 flower, gummies, vape cartridges, and more. And for a limited time, Mood is giving our listeners a free gram of THCA flower 
and 20% off your first order. Just visit hellomood.com and use our code Foley. I have to admit this was new to me. I am a rookie. I am not a veteran in this game like our pal Jim Ross, but I was so excited to try it and to check it out. And let me tell you the person who benefited the most might actually be my wife. I think I mentioned it before she's training to do some fitness modeling stuff and man, she's just run herself ragged. She hadn't been sleeping well until mood. She took one of their phenomenal gummies and man, she had the best sleep of her life. We are really sold on this product. I think you're going to enjoy it too, but THCA man, here's what I've learned about this THCA flower is perhaps mood's latest and most potent breakthrough in the world of legal cannabis. You see THCA I'm learning converts into THC when you heat it. So you get that classic, well, you know, euphoria high and mood has 10 other high inducing strains, the most potent they've ever offered. They put an end to guessing games at mood because they have federally legal forms of THC that have been extracted from hemp plants. All of their products are regularly third-party tested in drug enforcement agency registered labs. They're also sourced from small family farms and then grown organically. How about that? The experts at mood have tested and tailored different strains for specific moods from euphoria to energize, to creative, to chill, something for everybody, whatever mood you're looking for, they got you covered. However you take your THC mood can handle it. I mentioned I was a beginner, our old pal, JR, he's a vet. I enjoy the great tasting gummies. I know my man, JR loves the classic flower. Old Dave green likes a convenient pre-roll. There's something for everybody. Try moods, new THCA flower and get 20% off your first order and a free gram of THCA flower. Just go to hellomood.com and use the promo code Foley. That's hello. M O O D.com. The promo code Foley for 20% off your order and a free gram of THCA flower. As you said, it's the go home edition of Monday night raw. It's in uh, Richmond, Virginia, I believe. And it goes like two minutes. And then six days later, here you guys are at the pay-per-view in Houston, the uh, Toyota Center. I, I do want to ask, you know, because let's just call it like it is. You were a quote-unquote part-time guy here. Yeah. And now you're going to be coming in and taking one of those elusive main event spots. <laughs> and there's been some guys who've had some rumblings over the years that they don't think yeah. that's fair that The Rock comes back and he gets a WrestleMania main event or whatever. And you've always been the ultimate brother. Uh, amongst the boys, <laughs> chat me up. Did, did you feel any of that pushback, or is it different? Because, well, you're you. Well, I asked Edge about that when we were working in uh, 2006, and he goes, "Mick, he said that doesn't apply to you." Yeah, he says what the guys have problems with is someone coming in for one or two weeks and capturing a spot. He goes, "You come in for ten or twelve weeks and you build programs." that leave people better off than they were. And he goes, and ultimately you don't win these matches, you know, like (laughs) I always, I always try to leave people better off than they were. And I would never propose an angle um, that, that did not leave somebody better off. I guess the one where I went to Vince and said, I'd like to win the Royal rumble challenge, both champions because I wasn't on a brand. Uh, win a three-way dance and become a WWE uh, undisputed champion. Yeah, that was kind of all for me. (laughs) He shot that down in record time. He just said, literally, he didn't even think about it, Conrad. He just said, I have no interest whatsoever in doing that. 
And I said, okay, I've got this idea for me and Randy Orton. And then that idea with Randy Orton went on to be the best thing. Uh, you know, I understand from the boys' perspective, because I, you know, I'm still one of the boys. Yeah. Um, you want spots on the card. Um, but when I come up, you know, when I do these things, meet and greets, I'm asked uh, large three, the three most common things I'm asked about are Hell in a Cell, by far and away Hell in a Cell, Rock and Sock Connection, and uh, the Rumble where I appeared as three different characters. Yep. So in that case, probably there were some people going, this guy's getting three spots, he's costing two people their spots, but guess what? Those two people would have been forgotten yes. uh, instantly. And instead, we WWE, who is in the business of creating memories, came up with something that uh, people talk about to this day that really made them happy. So, you, you know, you have to find a balance. I think uh, there are some pay-per-views that rely too heavily on part-timers who may not have the same interest of coming in and making the uh, world a slightly better place for mankind. Um, but but I do think there's a time and a place for uh, returning guys to come back. Uh, sometimes you need them at the top of the card. Um, that would speak more to WWE's inability to create stars, but I think they're getting better at that. Um, too much is not good. None at all is even worse. I'm curious after you've been out for a while, you're not a regular part of the crew. And I know that at times you described yourself as a bit of a loner, but you did have some pals that you would travel with from time to time. Who are you hanging with here in 07? Or do you feel like an outsider? Well, I mean, I was not an outsider when I would get into the dressing room, but because I'd be flying in uh, while the guys were already on the road, uh, any time after 2000, was beginning in 2000 when I was WW commissioner, I was joining the rest of the crew en route. And so I was able to rent my own cars. Uh, the company would take care of my hotels. This is where they wanted me to stay at the TV hotels. And I'm like, I just want to stay like, you know, three, I'm a three-star man now, right? I'm no longer the one-star man. I'm a three-star man, but I don't like a big foyer. I don't want a bar. I just want a place where I can go in and check in and have a comfortable bed. And so I would ask them if I could get my own hotel and then submit the, uh, um, uh, the bills to the company. And I was always bad on that. I'm not a good dollar. I'm not a good organizational guy. And so I would usually end up handing them my receipts after about six months and there would be hundreds of them. Uh, but I was, I was used to traveling on my own. So I would see the guys and I really enjoy being around everybody when I got there, but I was on my own, you know, as far as hotels and cars went and I, and I liked it that way. It's a pretty short build we've got here. You're going to pop up just two weeks before the pay-per-view. You return on July 11th, 2007. That's a draft episode of Monday Night Raw in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And everyone remembers this episode for when Vince McMahon blew himself up in a limousine. And what I believe was also Vince McMahon Appreciation Night. What do you remember of this night? <laughs> I, was, I was really upset about it. Uh, I was upset about it. Uh, I we're, I know once we talk about the match, we'll jump forward to that next day, which was one of the you know, most tragic days 
in wrestling history. But before those events, and we're talking about the Benoit events, uh, began to unfold, I had about a 45-minute talk slash shouting match with Mr. McMahon because I hated that angle. Uh, Because at the time, I was doing quite a bit with uh, uh, injured service members, and I was always working with – kids who were facing challenges and, you know, including um, imminent deaths. And I remember uh, him, it was crazy because <laughs> going back to the episode where I did kiss Vince's butt, right. Following the I quit match with Rick. I, I we're, we're live. Uh, we're, we're backstage, but it's a live interview. So we can't cut. And I called him Vince and he said, what did you call me? And I thought, this is a trick question. I said, Vince? And he looked at me. I didn't realize that you were supposed to refer to him as Mr. McMahon when he's on camera. So when I have the conversation with Vince after the day after uh, Vengeance, which we will get to talking about. And I know we're kind of all over the place asking people to bear with us. I'll say, I tell you, he gave me 45 minutes of time and a lot of it was yelling. I remember saying, you know, who does, you know, who does think you're dead? A child who's, you know, who, who is, um, I don't know, child facing challenges and the prospect of death. You know, who else thinks you're dead? A U.S. service member who lost both her legs. These are people coming up to me asking about you. And he goes, Mick, uh. Vince McMahon didn't die. Mr. McMahon died. Oh. And I went, do you think our fans know the difference? He goes, of course they do. And I'm thinking back to where I said, called him Vince. And clearly I did not know the difference. Like right. I wasn't aware there was a Vince McMahon, <laughs> Mr. McMahon. And I, and this is when I saw the full gospel tabernacle come in, uh, <laughs> You know, because they were supposed to be celebrating his death. Like, you're going to have a, a, a certain death service, you know, memorial service. Uh, there, uh, was it San Antonio or was it, uh, we had the pay-per-view in Houston. That's right. So, I, I don't know if we were in uh, San Antonio or uh, Corpus Christi the next day. I think it may have been Corpus Christi. Uh, and I was like, I, I can't, I don't miss, I don't know if I demanded that I leave, but he said, I, there was probably more along the lines of, Nick, if you're not comfortable, you don't have to be here. And so I took off and I missed out on all the, you know, the tragedy that unfolded as, um, do you, you want to go, do you want to yeah. go back to vengeance and we'll cook, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We'll take, get, there, but you're all right. It was in Corpus Christi, Texas, the very next day, June 25th. The, the, the thing that, uh, that made me laugh about the Mr. McMahon, Vince McMahon thing, do you recall way back when Hulk Hogan was suing Gawker, there was a discussion, yes. something he said on the radio. Okay. He, he goes on Bubba the love sponge back in the day. Of course, that was a big piece of the story. And sure. There's a conversation where he's on the show, the radio show, shock, jock show. And he says that Hulk Hogan has a certain length piece of male equipment. <laughs> right. And then when he's quizzed about that on the stand, 
he has to say, I do not have a certain length piece of equipment. And he says his real name, Terry Belea's piece of equipment is not so-and-so size, but Hulk Hogan's is. <laughs> and it tickles me then, and it tickles me now. <laughs> Mr. McMahon is dead. Vince McMahon is alive. Oh, man. Something that Mr. Belea maybe doesn't. Amazing. The closest I can come to that is Mick Foley can't sing. Dude, love can sing. So well, like he's a changing character. That's a little bit different than the piece of equipment. I don't yeah. even know how that's physiological and possibly, you know, it's not possible, but I that was a, yeah. how, how Ric Flair was billed as being six, two or six, one, yeah. or you know, five, 10 or whatever. Yeah. It's, I it's, thought he was a six footer. Wasn't he? I don't think so. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe he, uh, with the Mick Foley route and he shrunk a little, I don't know. <laughs> But let's talk about um, how you find out that they want you for this match. Like, it feels like I, I totally understand the idea of we're going to do three matches a year, and, and we're kind of almost throw one away with Umaga, but we're trying to make a guy. So okay, but then this feels a little random when it's compared to what you did with Flair or what you did with Orton or any of that stuff. Who pitches that idea to you? Is this something where, where Vince calls you and says, here's the big idea, or what do you recall of that? This is probably a Brian Gewertz um, yeah. call. Brian would usually be the guy to call me. It just struck me as we're talking about this that I was filming a pilot called Wrestling My Family, um, 2007 pilot uh, for A&E. And we really felt like it was going good. This is pre Holy Foley, and um, and then the uh, it really felt like it was a good show. And the uh, showrunner, who was like the director, Marcus Fox, had been the showrunner for um, uh, Ozzy's show and Anna Cole's show, which were two of the biggest reality shows uh, on TV at that time. And he felt like he had a winner. And after the second day, he says, their only, their only concern is there's not enough conflict in the family. And I said, Marcus, I told them when they pitched this, I said, we're not like those families who yell at each other. And they said, no, no we're, we're looking for a new family. That's passe. But I think in uh, a lot of forms of entertainment, when push comes to shove, they want to rely on what has worked before. Yeah, and so when they came back for like the re uh, came back for additional shooting, we went from having nothing scripted, which doesn't mean there weren't produced elements, you know, like yeah, yeah, the Foley's are going on a cruise, you know, the the the, the older kids are going on a cruise. I've got to hold down the fort, the little cruise uh, with the little kids. I know that's happening. I know we're going to a racetrack. Like we have to make fun stuff happen, but as far as the dialogue went. No one ever gave us any dialogue. And now when they returned, they've got definite dialogue they want. And they're trying to turn up the uh, conflict factor. And that's where it got a little comfortable for me. Ultimately, the, you know, the show wasn't picked up. I think it would have done well, though. And it was fun to have our, our family there, especially when the younger kids were little. I think they were three and five. And we have adorable footage, especially when... Uh, Huey gets a call from the real Rocky Balboa. Uh, wow. This is the kids turned on to Rocky Balboa like they loved it. 
uh, Colette and I were getting ready to see the Rocky Balboa movie, which would have been like the sixth Rocky. So we're training for it by watching the original. And the two younger boys walk in as uh, Mickey and Rocky are having the heart to heart. Yeah. And now as an older guy, I get this is not about a fight. It's about a relationship and mending differences and forgiveness. There's a lot going on in that Rocky movie. So they catch the old man, the old lady, tears streaming down their face. They sit in and they become immediate Rocky fans in a way that Dewey and Noel never were. The truth is they've never seen a single Rocky movie. And that becomes our thing, uh, the Rocky thing. He wanted to watch it every single day. And so now this is is where being a dad is the best. You go through these phases where the kids don't quite have the mastery of the English language. And Huey and Mickey are referring to bleeding as blood blood is a verb like is rocky is apollo creed gonna blood us <laughs> like, oh, cause us to bleed so i call up one day to the kids as part of this show and, and i do a halfway decent rocky rocky uh you huey and mickey this is rocky balboa and i want you to know that i'm gonna be coming over tonight and i'm gonna blood you guys a little bit <laughs> and so <laughs> so, so I get a call back from my wife about 10 minutes later. What have you done? The children are now scared. They think Rocky Balboa is going to come over and, and, and beat them up. And so I try to leave a message for the kids, you know, letting them know Rocky would never do that. Uh, you, uh, this is your good friend Rocky Balboa, and I just want you to know I would never blood you. I love you guys. And all of a sudden, the phone picks up, and I hear Huey go, Rocky? <laughs> oh, my <laughs> when are you, God. When are you coming over? I said, well, I'm in training for a big fight. You know, I can't go over right now. I said, when are you? Can you come over tomorrow? And I said, I start drawing a blank. So hopefully a lot of people know the original Rocky. I just start randomly reciting lines from the book. It's like 88 degrees out, and I'm still going, "Ah, it's a cold night out here. Good night for a basketball game. (laughs) But we were able to capture some of these amazing moments uh, with the kids. Uh, 2007, you know, I had this great, you know, this really nice contract where I didn't have to do that much, and I was making a pretty respectable living. Uh, I, I was doing a few college speeches here and there, but I hadn't yet embarked on the one man a tour type of thing. So I had time and I'm doing writing and, uh, but I was trying to get into shape and that was almost impossible because of my back injury. Uh, if you look further, pretty much from 2007 through 2000, uh, yeah, 12, whenever the last match was, I never actually had a comeback. I had one move. Generally, somebody would miss something, like Kurt Angle would miss a moonsault off the top. I would hit him with a double arm DDT. We'd double down, and out comes a sock. And it was exciting. It's not what you're used to seeing because almost everybody's comeback these days involves like six or seven ultra cool moves. And I had none of that. But I was just trying to work with what I had because every time I tried to train for a match, I was just getting further hurt. So that sets the stage for me not being in optimal condition for vengeance. I'm worried about it, but I also realize I've got four other guys there to uh, do some of the heavy lifting. 
and that I'm probably being going to be okay if I'm smart and I make sure that whatever I do take part in looks good. So Brian is the guy who makes the call and makes the pitch. Yeah. Yeah. Brian is usually the guy and he's got an outstanding book out by the way. I'm not sure if you guys have heard about it. Oh yeah. Oh man. So good. I got an early copy and uh, so I could give a blurb and I read it in two sittings um, and I must have laughed out loud 15 times. Probably half the laughs came from uh, situations I was on hand for. The other half came situations that I wasn't, but knowing the participants, uh, you know, it's, it's really well written. And, uh, it, you know, I mean, it, it gives the scoop. Some people would say it's expose, but it's also a loving look at the, uh, you know, the wild and <laughs> uh, disorganized family that WWE can be. One of my favorite stories involves, and I won't give a spoiler here, but they ask him if he has an opinion about the way they should, or what they should name the way they would start an XFL football game where they just sort of have <laughs> players dive on the ball and whoever gets yeah. it wins it. There were lots of suggestions. Michael Hayes had a pretty good one ball or nothing. And okay. Brian had two really good ones and I oh, won't spoil it. I can't give a spoiler cause it, I laughed so hard, Mick, that I snorted and my wife thought I needed to be checked on because it's so far out of left field. Either way, here's what Mick and I know for sure. You're going to love there's just one problem. True tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE. Seriously, just go to Amazon. Look up yeah. Brian, Brian Gewertz, as uh, Michael Hayes would say it, G-E-W-R-T-Z. <laughs> There's just one problem. Go check it out. Fantastic book. <laughs> yeah. Becky Lynch loves it. Uh, uh, Becky's working on a memoir of her own. Uh, I'm kind of providing a little bit of counsel there for her. I have to tell you, I'm on the inside reading the chapters. And uh, I said, listen, uh, I will. Uh, uh, I don't know if you know, knew this when Jericho's book came, was about to come out, his first book. He said, hey, uh, can you give me a blurb? You don't have to read it. Uh, this first book came out, what, seven, eight years ago? Something like I that. Can't remember. Yeah, it's been a while. I said, well, Chris, you know, like, going to pers personal pride, like, I can't, I won't blurb something I haven't read. So I started reading it, and I realized, oh, man, he's got something good here, but it could be better. And I said, hey, Chris, if you want, I can go over some of this. I've got some suggestions. So over the course of about nine hours, and you could check with him, we went over every single page, and I probably had 200 suggestions. And it wasn't like I was trying to turn it into my book. It was just like, okay, um, you know, now that we're at, you're taking us to Owen's uh, memorial service, now is probably not the time for that, you know, like a, a self, uh, uh, you know, defacing, not defacing, but... Um, Help me out with the word here. I'm looking for some kind of, you know, the joke. Self-deprecating humor. Yeah, self-deprecating humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, little things like uh, when uh, a hockey enforcer catches Chris, like kind of looking at his bag on a flight and threatens to beat him up. I, I go, Chris, all right, I, go, I get this guy's a tough guy, right? He's fought people. I said, but you're selling Bruiser Bedlam less than you are this guy. This guy has hurt people and punched people. Bruiser Bethlehem's killed people. Like, you need to play up the personal, <laughs> you know, the danger involved 
in uh, calling bruiser bedlam out and not actually washing the dishes, but just rubbing them with a cloth. And so he would go back and after we were done, he, if I had 200 suggestions, he probably went with 185 of them. And he had an editor. He had an editor and the editor goes, Hey, I just know I, you know, she, she didn't want to say, Hey, you did a great job. She thanked me. She said, Oh, I just thought that's the way he wanted to come across. And I said, uh, you know, I rarely drop the F bombs. Right. Right. Um, but when he told me a story about approaching dynamite kid in a bar in Edmonton, he comes up, you know, I'm Chris is probably 10, 12 years old. He's got a piece of paper and dynamite looks at him and goes, don't even fucking think about it. <laughs> Chris goes <laughs> running out of the bar. And so when he writes the story, he writes it, you know, don't even effing think about it. I said, Chris, what makes the story great is your emphasis on the words and his accent. Yeah. That's what puts you in that place. So it's all these little these little things. And I guess in that way, I'm like Mickey Goldmill, Rocky's chain trainer. Like, I've got pain and I've got experience. I want to give it to you, kid. And if I can help make someone's book better, not make it my book, but just make it better through what I've learned, uh, then I'll do that. So I'm, uh, I'm going to be on Team Becky, you know, and um, I will uh, – she's really open to suggestions – and I really love the idea of helping a friend. Uh, he's a, uh, my memoir is about, it is about as personal a project as you could possibly have. You're putting your life story out there. People, you know, people are not receptive to it. You take that stuff personally. And so I want it to be the best it can be. And the eight or nine chapters I've read are really good. Uh, she's just at a point where she's questioning herself. And I said, uh, let me, uh, yeah, let's, let's, uh, I'll come on up there to the, uh, Rollins Lynch compound and we'll spend some time going over this thing and we'll make sure it's as good as it can be. All right. Let's be honest. Do you hate feeling miserable the day after the drinks? You feel like maybe you've been thrown off the hell in a cell. Same. Well, luckily a game changing product called Zabionics is here to help. Zabionics pre-alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. How about that? It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. And here's how it works. When you drink alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration. That's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it most. So drink Zbiotics before drinking drink responsibly and enjoy the night with confidence. And I got to admit, I wasn't too sure about this the first time I heard about it, but then I tried it with my pal, Eric Bischoff several years ago. Now at a podcast movement, we had had a great day meeting with agencies, but then we wanted to celebrate. Uh, we also had to be on stage the next morning to present at like 8 AM. Well, we both enjoyed a bottle of Zbiotics before our first drink, and we were shocked at how great we felt the next day. We were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We could really tell a difference. It makes such a difference the next day. I make sure I always have Zbiotics before drinking. Even after drinks the night before, I know I'll be able to hit the ground running, whether it's with a podcast or doing mortgages, or maybe if I got to hit the old dusty trail for a road trip with the wife, Zbiotics makes it all possible I can't recommend this enough. I want you to try it. Uh, if you've listened to this show long enough, you know that I'm a big fan of the old vodka waters. 
Well, dude, Zbiotics is what I do before the vodka waters. I'm a hundred percent convinced that Zbiotics actually works, and I want you to try it, especially right here during the holiday season. Savor the moment. Let Zbiotics do the rest. Go right now to zbiotics.com/mick to get fifteen percent off your first order when you use Mick at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember head to zbiotics.com slash Mick and use the code Mick for 15% off. And we want to thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring today's episode and the good times we might have tonight. Yeah. Oh man. Just the salt of the earth. Good on you. dude. <laughs> The, uh, the vengeance show here is subtitled night of champions before it becomes its own pay-per-view the following year. Right. And, uh, on the raw where you returned, they set it up by saying anyone still on the raw roster at the end of the night, who was a current or former world champion would be eligible for an open yeah. WWE championship match of vengeance. Of course you come out, announce yourself for the match. So that's kind of weird in hindsight. Man, yeah, it is. It is a little strange. Um, the 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 line that resonated with me is, um, uh, "Does he have any real friends?" Yeah, because uh, I had always been told, like, he's, you know, so busy and immersed in work, he doesn't have any hobbies. You know, work is his hobby. So uh, I I have to believe he's, um, you know, it's a tough transition. I'm sure he sees his grandchildren all the time. Uh, I'm lucky. Uh, that I'll be uh, one of the hosts of the new season of uh, uh, Most Wanted Treasures. I don't even know if I'm allowed to announce that, but uh, me, Lita, and Booker are going to be hosting that show. And uh, because my mom only lives an hour and a half away from Stanford, uh, where some of the shooting is done at the warehouse, uh, I'll, I'll reach out to Vince and see if he wants to get together uh, for a lunch or something. And, uh, yeah, I'd like to keep in touch with him. You know, he wasn't a perfect man, but man, uh, Conrad, without Vince's belief in me, we're not doing this podcast, right? Right. Like no one's, no one's doing a podcast with me based on having a, a fairly good run from 91 to 94 <laughs> WCW. Uh, so I owe a lot to Vince. He wasn't a perfect man. I still maintain he was a great man, uh, with a couple of, uh, flaws, and uh, uh, so it's really interesting to look at that. And it's interesting to see how often I was referring to him as Vince McMahon, not knowing right. that by that point he wanted to be Mr. McMahon exclusively. So when the show goes off the air, Vince McMahon has been blown up. And as yep. we said, it creates you know a reaction unlike any before. There's a famous story that Donald Trump even called the office about it. And... The next week in Richmond, Virginia, this is where the Umaga squash happens. You open the show and yeah. do an insincere promo saying, boy, uh, in hindsight with Vince being dead and all my comments last week kind of came off kind of bad. And then here comes Andy <laughs> Orton. What do you remember about this? Nothing. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> because <laughs> I think because I was so upset about the Vince thing, uh, that these other things. Uh, anything past that is not something I would have committed to memory. Well, what happens is coachman comes out, announces it's going to be Cena and Lashley versus Booker and Orton as the main event and Foley and Umaga because Vince didn't like Foley and he admired Umaga. And here we go. 
Uh, Meltzer would say this Foley versus Umaga was supposed to be Foley's first singles match on raw in seven years, but it technically never got started. They brawled outside the ring. Foley clocked Umaga with a chair shot to the head, which Umaga barely sold. Umaga then super kicked the chair into Foley's face and did the running hip attack to Foley, knocking his head into the ring steps and Foley sold the KO and they had the ref call it off before it even started. This was one of those educational knockout endings with Foley being all glassy eyed. To me, it doesn't make sense to do that to a guy who was in line for a title main event on the final show before the pay-per-view allowed a babyface challenger by someone who isn't even a participant in the title match. That is, unless Umaga will somehow play a part in Foley's story at the pay-per-view, I guess we'll see, but at the moment, it sure did come off strange, particularly because the first thing you did was question whether or not Foley would be injured and out of the match. It was addressed later with Lawler saying that he expected Foley would be there, but no definitive word was given before the show went off the air. Let's We'll talk about the silliness of the booking uh, in a minute, yeah. though. Umaga gone way too soon. Another super talented performer we have to talk about in past tense. What'd you think of working with Umaga? Well, I, it wasn't that I minded working with him. I minded working with him that close to the show in something that didn't benefit the main event at all. That, now that match would not have counted towards my three. That was kind of like a bonus thing. I don't, you know, I would go through these phases where like, you gotta, you know, figure out which hills you're going to die on, be willing to die on. The Omaga match was not one that I was willing to die on. The Vince uh, angle where he was blown up, that was one that I would, uh, it's a hill I was willing to climb and die on because I just felt really strongly about that. So if you're going to, you can't come in with two arguments. You've got to keep it, I guess technically you can. I just feel for the more effective argument, you keep it limited to one, which is this, you know, which I thought was like a tasteless and confusing angle that uh, had led a decent portion of our audience to believe that Mr. McMahon had died. And I just didn't think that was territory we should be crossing with our show. We're supposed to take people's minds off their problems. I guess in some ways we do create new problems by having our characters who they have uh, you know, uh, emotional investments in get themselves in situations, but you know, you love that. You love to watch a good TV show. I think that's different than feeling and being led to believe through really believable pyrotechnics that uh, the owner of WWE has perished. So I just, um, I was more concerned with that. And I was, I, I did not like the idea that, you know, I, I lost this match so quickly, uh, only because it had nothing to do with it only because it not only did it have nothing to do with the main event match, but that it hurt it. Um, it hurt the match in a sense that it gave fans even less of an idea that I had a chance to win that thing. And I think when you get out there in the best case scenario, it's like any man can win at any time. And we've just seen one of the participants squashed as uh, Meltzer said, first raw, match in seven years, uh, not a great way to make a statement. Unfortunately, well, since we're speaking of, uh, you know, an angle where someone passes away, the real life Sherry Martell lost her life on June 15th. Ooh. I, I'm not sure. Did you guys spend any time together in WCW? Were y'all just passing? Did you get to know Sherry at all? I did get to know Sherry and I'll tell you what, my first time I met her it made such an impression on me. 
uh, because I was on the independent scene and there was a real talented Long Island worker named Lou Fabiano, uh, who became a buddy of mine. This is after I, I, uh, left Danucci school. I was always part of Danucci school, but, um, I was getting bookings on the weekends. Once I moved, once I finished college, I was no longer seven hours away. I was nine hours away back in the days of the 55 mile an hour speed limit. And it just didn't make sense for me to be driving out to Pittsburgh when I was getting booked, you know, uh, I, 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 almost every weekend. So Louie took me to a WWE show back when they would run three shows a night and there'd be an A crew, a B crew, and C crew. C crew ran high school gymnasiums and they would have a handful of stars, but there'd be some local people on there. And it wasn't, it wasn't the A card, which had Hogan on it in the bigger arenas. And he was like, hey, I don't want to do Louis. like, oh, I, want to, I don't do a good Louis Fabiano. <laughs> if you can think of an Italian guy from Long Island, that's Louis Fabiano, who later went on. He worked for Continental Championship Wrestling uh, as the New York thug, not the Brooklyn brawler, the New York thug. And then he, uh, he also worked uh, Puerto Rico quite a bit. Even though he's Italian, he was a Middle Eastern terrorist in Puerto Rico, only in wrestling, right? Uh, but he said he wanted, he wanted to go to the show. He wanted to see Sherry Martell because they'd worked a couple of independent tours. And I'm thinking, I, Sherry Martell's a top flight talent. Lou is a, an enhancement guy from Long Island on the indie scene. And, uh, he knocks on the door and says, uh, hey, can you tell Sherry that, uh, Lou Fabiano is out here? And I don't expect anything. About 30 seconds later, that door opens up and she's just, ah, for those who knew her, she was such a charming, kind-hearted. She had that like infectious excitement, and she came out. She went and like wrapped him up in a big hug, and then he said, "Hey, this is my friend Cactus Jack," and she gave me, "Oh, a friend of Louis, a friend of mine," and she, that was my introduction to Sherry. So she was always nice, always sweet. Uh, I'd heard rumblings that she, uh, not just rumblings. I'd seen her when she was, you know, taking too much in the way of pills. Um, for someone who could be so, you know, uh, infectiously excited. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. Whose excitement could be infectious. She could also get down pretty easily. Um, I don't know if she was ever diagnosed with depression, but it seemed to me like she did go from high to lows uh, during the time I knew her. But I saw her in action a lot. Um, you know, I think the the high point for her was, you know, as Shawn Michaels second and then as Randy Orton second. But the stuff she did in, uh, in WCW was excellent as well. She was a wonderful person to have uh, in the dressing room. Uh, things weren't always going good in WCW. And so it was good to have somebody who was so positive there put smiles in your faces. She was a great lady. I really liked her. I did not know her that well, but I knew her. I knew her enough to consider her a friend. Such a talented lady. I think it's a shame that more people don't talk about her now. I mean, I'm glad she got to go into the hall of fame and get her moment. Yeah. Man. Imagine how much fun she would be having with, with women's wrestling being <laughs> much differently now. Yeah. Like yeah. Let's talk about, uh, the unfortunate circumstance here. You know, the, uh, the elephant in the room, if you will, there's a now infamous ECW title match that's supposed to happen on this pay-per-view 
between Johnny Nitro and CM Punk, uh, which Nitro won. And of course, that's not the original plan. Chris Benoit was supposed to be here. He doesn't show up. And a lot of folks think that's way out of character for him to miss a show. And apparently like no show, no call. And I think people probably started to assume that there was some sort of an accident or what have you. What do you remember first hearing backstage about, Hey man, where's Chris? It was just that rumbling. We didn't know where he was. And so at that point, yeah, I, I had quite a bit of seniority, seniority. So when I spoke, people tend to listen. I, I remember saying one thing's for sure. If Chris Benoit is not a pay-per-view, something's wrong. Like something major. I was thinking health problem, um, that he had some type of health problem, but I was, he was not the type of guy who would miss a match at all. Um, now the next day, after that um, talk with Mr. McMahon, still no, still no sign of Chris Benoit. But uh, Vince understands how yeah, I'm, I'm offended by that angle, and he sends it. You know, you don't want to be part of it. Go home. So he sent me home, and on that night there was just awful weather throughout the southeast and the southwest. Flights were being canceled and delayed. So I'm sitting in the. Uh, sitting in the Corpus Christi airport. I'm trying to think this is 2007. I'm, the internet was around, but I, I, did, I didn't have access to it. I would not have had a tablet or anything like that. I probably just had a flip phone, but I start hearing rumblings. Maybe it's from uh, local news yeah. uh, that there's been this tragedy and I can't get more information. And because uh, my flight is delayed and I've been rerouted, and it's one of those situations where you end up in Atlanta four hours after you're supposed to be there. Atlanta is such an enormous hub that when a weather condition hits like that, everyone's scampering for the hotel rooms. And I end up in, you know, it's bad even by my standards, you know, dangerous place to be, a lot of action going on in the, in the parking lot. Um, like one of these hotels you, you would see in the movie, the Florida project, you know, where people are there for extended times. There's, you know, a variety of improprieties yeah. <laughs> going on before your very eyes. And it's, uh, it's sinking in that this, uh, person I've known and respected for a long time, Chris Benoit, and even more so Nancy, who, uh, I'd known since 1990, uh, they're, they're not with us anymore. And I'm devastated by the next day. They, I think by this, by the next day, the realization has come that, uh, this wasn't a break in that this was something more complex. I start getting those phone calls from the different outlets and I, I I'm not ready to talk about it yet. Um, but when I get home, I'd say by the time I got home, I was already down in the sense that, you know, a depression had struck, snuck in that would stick around for a while because I'd always been such a proud, not just advocate, but kind of representative of wrestling and always stood up for it. And this was something that just devastated us because it asked us to defend the indefensible uh, in the aftermath of uh, the deaths and suicides. I think the only guy who came across well 
was Chris Jericho because Chris was wise enough to understand that nobody gains from a shouting match. Yeah. And he said he would only be on if he was the only guest. That's the only way you really uh, make your points. Otherwise, uh, I've been on those situations, you know, where you go to like CNN and it's, it's you and three professional panelists and they all have to get their stuff in. And you're kind of depending on the person running the show to ask you a question so that you can talk. But other than that, you've got to butt in. And like I said, you're, you're dealing with three people who are doing that as, as a living. Uh, it's really uncomfortable. They had a lot of misinformation out there. Everyone wanted to go with the roid rage thing. I remember Chris Jericho, hey, oh, Chris, real smart guy. He says uh, he leads off, uh, he reads off a list of effects. And they, and, uh, you know, jittery and, you know, uh, uh, (laughs) there's a a bunch of them, jittery, uptight, prone to frustration, blah, blah, blah. He reads it off. And then the uh, woman goes, well, this just goes to show what the steroids can do. And Chris said, I just read you the effects of too much caffeine. And he had a way of putting things in perspective, like, you know, we all jump out. It's a shame that, you know, news is, is, uh, it revolves around the ratings. Um, yeah. So it's entertainment. It's not so much news. When I was growing up, the news was a lost leader. It wasn't yeah. there to make money. It was there as a public service. Um, and then you have guys trying to like outdo each other on different networks. So for like that week, it was a free-for-all. And I didn't want any part of it. I didn't want any part of it. I remember I'd been approached by the Bill O'Reilly show. And I was going to do it. And it was actually uh, one of the representatives from uh, uh, Child Fund International who said, are you sure you want to do that? And I said, uh, yeah, I think Bill would treat me well. And he, she said, you've done a lot of good work in the world. I don't think you should trust that this one guy is going to do the right thing for you. Uh, and I went, all right. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's a valid point. And I, and I didn't talk about it. One thing I you know, I was really, I, when I say I was struggling, I think a lot of us in the industry were struggling in the aftermath of that tragedy. Uh, our personal appearances were cut down dramatically. Uh, nobody wanted to book a pro wrestler for a period of time. And the few things I did do, I remember going to uh, Six Flags over uh, Texas, and you just feel like every eyeball is upon you, like, oh, you're one of those guys. Looking back, Conrad, after Eddie Guerrero's death, you know, all of us were sad, but Chris was devastated. There's that clip of him and he's just, he's, he's bawling his eyes out. And so I thought, you know, the writing side of me might try to understand it and write a fictitious, but in a sense, historically, you know, inspired book called letters to Eddie in which you see a human being losing his grip on reality and succumbing to his demons through the through his own words. And I never, I never followed through with that. I think it would have been really interesting, but I have no doubt. uh, And I I don't want to say I don't have any doubt, but it would not surprise me. And I, I think it's, I'm almost sure that Eddie's death played so heavily on Chris's mind, having lost his very best friend, uh, that he was never quite the same. 
Uh, you compound that with the style he had that was relentless. He wasn't one of those guys who changed gears as he got older, uh, learned how to you know make audiences laugh, learned to connect in another way. He never did that. He was just going to give you everything he had every single match. Uh, and, and he was, you, you, you don't come back after neck surgery and still drop the headbutt off the top rope. You don't do that. Uh, I wish somebody had pulled him aside and said, you got a lot of moves. You got to come up with something different. I don't care if Tommy Billington did it or not. You need to stop coming off the top rope with a surgically repaired neck. But some of these guys, they push themselves so hard. I believe Chris, who was always you know, small by wrestling standards, uh, continued to use, you know, enhancers even while he was recovering from his neck surgery. So it was uh, sad. It was really sad. He was an intense guy by nature anyway. I think he was greatly affected by the loss of his friend. I do not know what was going on uh, behind the scenes in his marriage. I mean, I've never uh, found out for sure if, Daniel had fragile X sim, uh, uh, syndrome. I don't know what the situation was. I just uh, know it was uh, tr tragic and uh, one of the worst things ever, that's ever happened to us. And it really set WWE and wrestling back a ways because it came across so negatively uh, in the uh, in, in the media. And man, the, uh, the loss of life for Nancy and her son, Daniel just can't be overstated. Um, there's nothing we can say that will, will make that better, but golly, what a senseless tragedy. But I do want to ask, and man, this is, this is awkward to bring up, but we didn't know what we know now back then about head trauma. And, you know, back in, back in my day, people used to say, oh, it was bell rung. And, and that was but it, and, and now we've learned and we've gotten better and I'm thankful for that. But when you're getting, you know, to try to process all of this and, and, and I think a lot of people, you know, don't want to hear that maybe CTE was a part of this and, and, and think that that's a cop out or an excuse. And I certainly understand it, but it, CTE did become a topic during this era. And Chris Benoit did become one of those examples. And with what we know about concussions, well, how you've had a bunch of those. Yeah start to get into your mind like man i don't know what happened with chris but if we kind of shared the same experience in the ring that has to be a little scary right man uh, it is um it is and you know uh we're talking about uh doing this benefit for um steve mongo mcmichael yes sir uh in the beginning of september and uh, you asked me like how quickly was i on that like immediate affirmative I'll, I'll be, I'll be there. I, you know, I don't care if I have to spend an extra day in Chicago. I mean, I given, I was a huge bears fan, uh, from the time, uh, 1969, I had a Dick Buckus poster hanging over my bed and he finally signed it like 20, 25 years later, which is a good story for another time. But I love the bears. I remember when Deborah was my assistant, uh, I told her, I said, yeah, I was a big Bears fan. I said, I bet you I could still rattle off uh, 10 names from the 86 Super Bowl team. And she went, really? And I went, boom, 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 and had them all. And so here's Mongo, who was just this, not just larger than life, and that he was a 
275 pound monster of a man, but lived life with a real gleam in his eye. And he's, he looks like he's down below a hundred pounds. It's, uh, it's heartbreaking. You can still see the light in his eye. Uh, and you can't prove that it was the concussions, but there's definitely a link between uh, football and pro wrestling and early onset uh, ALS. Uh, Conrad, I went as a guest to Chris Nowinski's to the uh, uh, gala for the Boston Center for Traumatic Encephalopathy. I think it's called Concussion Legacy Institute now, but I figure as long as I can continue to say Boston Institute for Traumatic Encephalopathy, I'll be okay. Yep. But there was a running back who was in a wheelchair with early onset ALS, and he said it's the same thing that you did. He said, back in my day, they said, ah, oh, you got your bell wrong. Yeah. Uh, you, got a, you got a dinger. And he said, if instead of being told I had my bell rung or I got a dinger, if my coach had looked me in the eye and said, you have just suffered a traumatic brain injury. He said, I might not be in this chair. Wow. Uh, because we really downplayed yeah. head injuries. Uh, guys who did not wrestle with head injuries were looked down upon. Um, you know, we had the benefit. Like uh, when I had a concussion, I could say, hey, listen, man, don't hit me in the head today. Let's go after my knee. That's that's something we could do. But really what we should have been doing is taking 10 days off or eight days yeah. off. But you just did not do that at the time. We've we learned so much, right? Like uh, going, going back to the cell match, uh, I'll say during my shows, hey, hey, you know, we've learned a lot. <laughs> and if the same situation presented itself in 2022, that match would be stopped. Yes. And I'd say, luckily for me, in a weird way, it wasn't because had that cell match been stopped, it would have trended. Now, let's just say this was a new match. It would have trended for two days and then been forgotten. Yeah. And instead, because of the actions of the survivors, meaning me and The Undertaker and Terry Funk as well, it was like a snowball going downhill, gathering momentum. But the line I use, and you've been at the show when I use this one, it's like, we didn't stop matches. We bought time. Yeah. And I'm proud of that, but it's also like living in the dark ages. You know, like, no, we, we don't buy time these days. You know, we stop matches and we don't worry about the match that day. We worry about the next, you know, 30, 40 years of that participant's uh, life. So we have learned a lot. Uh, I know that uh, the CTE diagnosis has been really helpful to Chris's dad. Uh, I have to feel like something went wrong in there because he was such a humble, nice guy, very intense, very difficult on himself. But, uh, you know, I don't remember many people having a crossword with Chris. You know, he was very highly thought of. I, I could not call him a good friend. Because he was one of the guys that I went, hey, Chris, how you doing? Family good. And you think, you know, like <clears throat> you go through that same routine and you realize that other than the two times we traveled, like we never really had a big conversation. But it was always pleasant. And especially when uh, Nancy was there with his kid, uh, with his boy, Daniel, I'd gather around and spend a little extra time because Nancy and I, you know, had the, the friendship going back to 1990, 89, actually, when I joined WCW. Um, so I, I'm still skeptical as to whether 
anybody, no matter their brain condition, uh, would have it in them to pick up a gun and kill someone they love. Like, I don't know. That's a step beyond. I say it probably would not have happened had he not had the brain injuries, but I don't think you can blame it on the brain injuries alone, if that makes sense. I don't think we need to give him a pass. I would like to talk about Nancy Sullivan. Any any fun or interesting Nancy Sullivan stories you can share with us? I don't think we celebrate her nearly enough. No, no, we don't. And I wrote an article about her a couple of years ago. You know, everyone, every I don't do it nearly as frequently as I used to. Uh, but every once in a while, I'll sit down and I'll write an article that takes three or four hours. And those are the articles I'm proudest of. They're not the articles that get the widest readership because if you want people to react to stuff you put up, you put up a funny meme or you put up a photo with a one sentence uh, description. But sometimes I like to take the deep dive. And I did that with Nancy. And I brought up the fact that when I met her, she was woman, uh, Kevin Sullivan's wife. And uh, she was managing uh, Doom. Ron Simmons and, and Butch Reed. And she was much higher on the card than I was. I was Kevin's project, you know, Sullivan Slaughterhouse. But I'll tell you what, Conrad, I've been around a long time. I know when I'm being <laughs> blown off. I know when someone's not interested in talking to me at the least. And I never got that from Nancy. Actually, I got the antithesis. She was always all smiles. Like I remember her writing like in a notebook, almost like she was a middle schooler, like Nancy loves Kevin. Like they were a really happy couple together. It's crazy. They suffered that wrestling. It was, what is it? They worked themselves into a shoot. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. You don't ever just, I think if, if a booker approaches you about having a, uh, you know, a real life, uh, you know, an angle with your real life spouse, just go, I've seen the, the, I've seen the documentation on this. I'm, I'm not going to fall into that trap. Uh, but after, um, uh, she left, uh, WCW, she was a regular in ECW and she was great there. I worked with her a lot because she was Sandman second. And I had the, uh, had the uh, feud with Sandman. And I think people forget just how hot, when I say hot, I'm talking about the crowds in Florida. These are people who believed. And if they didn't believe in all of it, they believed in Kevin Sullivan, that he was the devil incarnate. So when this woman comes off and joins forces, like you're putting your life on the line in some of those small Florida towns. And they welcomed that type of heat. So I think when you put together the work she did as fallen angel in Florida, the work she did as uh, a woman with the incredible transformation, this is going back to like 88 uh, where Rick Steiner was on his first date with this cute you know, girl with the pigtails and the horn rim glasses. And then before his eyes, she transforms into a woman. It was really great TV. Uh, I think when you put all those things together, the three different runs she's had that uh, she's really deserving of more recognition and maybe a, uh, you know, the, all the Holy grail is the WWE hall of fame. Um, I don't, I I think eventually it's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few years though. 
just because of the optics of, you know, the, the negative connotation it would, it would bring about. With I, I, yeah. I think on the heels of, uh, China's induction, I, I'm overjoyed that Joni was inducted, but I don't think you want consecutive. And that may have been two years ago. I may not be mixing up my uh, years. I'm not sure if you want consecutive or even, um, tragedies, uh, tragedies, uh, female tragedies. I think you want to give those a few years, you know, when you're, it's tough when you deduct, when you induct someone posthumously, uh, and, the, and the deaths are not by natural causes. I think you got to space them out a little bit. Listen, it's a, it's an awkward conversation to have, but I hope people will take a little time today and go celebrate some Nancy stuff. You know, we're talking yeah. about stuff, go watch some of her stuff in ECW and WCW and really, really fun stuff with her. And as silly as it sounds, try to talk about wrestling a little bit now. Uh, speaking of <laughs> Umaga, who just beat the shit out of you earlier yeah. is going to lose to Santino, uh, in two and a half <laughs> minutes by DQ, which really makes this whole thing that he ha- that happened with you and raw an even bigger head scratcher, right? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'd rub somebody the wrong way back then. <laughs> I do know going in, uh, let me, I, I want to give a lot of credit to Booker T. Uh, Booker at that time and throughout his career, he's experimented uh, with promo styles, accents, you know, the King Booker. And then when he went to TNA, he developed like uh, an African King. <laughs> I remember he's AJ Styles is uh, only fit to you know clean up dog uh, horse poop or so he was he would try things yeah and in this case uh, I remember him giving a promo and he goes he wasn't really doing the King Booker accent he's like how much do we actually know about this Lashley. <laughs> Yeah, we know he's an expert with munitions. There was some mystery. I can't remember what happened. And he's cutting a promo on Lashley. And I'm in the ring trying not to laugh because Booker is so entertaining and can be so. (laughs) It can be tough to keep a straight face around. So we're trying to make this match make sense instead of just five guys jumbled together. Uh, and, and even when it was being laid out, by that time, you know, matches were more thoroughly laid out by producers. I remember thinking, I don't think there's enough stuff in here. I don't, you know, I knew that the WWE had set the bar really high for three-way dances and four ways. And here we have this five-way and there's a meeting and they lay out some stuff, all of which sounds good. And it's like, okay, sounds good. I may have even said, like, this doesn't feel like it's long enough. And they went, oh, no, we're good. We're good. And if you go back, I believe it was only about an 11-minute five-way match. Lucky for me, you know, I didn't have to have a great endurance. I will go back. This is not me picking or knocking on Booker T because things happen. I do know that the next day I was, despite being angry at Vince and being sent home to compound everything I was going through uh, with the news of the, uh, uh, the Benoit tragedy becoming apparent, I was also kind of reeling and lightheaded from what I judged to be a concussion. And when I got home a couple days later, I see uh, the Raw show and they have a uh, not a super slow-mo, but a slow-mo, a Booker T's <laughs> super kick on me. At the moment I see it land, I was like, 
that's why I'm lightheaded. And so Booker T and I joked about it a little bit later, and he tried saying that I send the uh, forearms in a little hard in the corner. And then he kind of laughed. He goes, okay, man, I, I really did send that one in a little too hard. Not by design, but just sometimes those things happen. But I was relieved to see, okay, there's a reason for it. When I started running into trouble when I was in TNA, is I stopped seeing the reasons behind the, the concussions. And that's when I should have just said, I'm calling it a day because it no longer takes much to hurt me. Uh, at least I could justify continuing on, uh, uh, because that was a, <laughs> that made some serious impact. I know we have the footage somewhere, so hopefully you can find yeah, it. Here it is. Okay. Let's see it. Okay. Here we go. Now watch, watch this kick. Boom. Watch my jaw. Bam. Yeah. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Here we go. This is the key shot. President going back and to his left. Back Boom. to the left. <laughs> back and to the left. I mean, that's, that's a pretty uh, legit yeah, kick there. Yeah, so that uh, had me dazed and confused. Great performer, great super kick. And that one just, uh, you know, a little, um, you know, not intentional, but just uh, jolted the jaw a little bit. Guys, by now you've heard about Blue Chew on our program for a long time. Mick and I are big believers in Blue Chew, and we want you to try it. Sincerely, this isn't just for guys who have a <clears throat> problem. This is for guys who are trying to leave a lasting impression, for guys who want to enhance their experience. Think about it as PEDs for your PENIS. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredient as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime y'all day or night. So plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And the process is simple guys. It's three steps. Number one, you sign up at bluechew.com. Number two, you'll consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, number three, you'll receive your prescription in just a few days. Bluetooth tablets are made here in the USA. They're prepared to ship directly to your door. And by the way, it's in a discreet package. So don't worry about the mailman knowing your business. Okay. The best part, it's all done online. That means you get to skip the awkward conversations. You don't even have to go to the doctor's office. There's no waiting in line at the pharmacy. It doesn't get any easier than this. And I've never recommended blue chew to someone. And they came back and said, oh, it didn't work. Everybody's like, Hey man, uh, thanks for the pro tip. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, chew it and do it y'all. Let's have some better sex. Shall we? We've got a special deal for our listeners. Try blue chew free and use our promo code Foley at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is Foley to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. We thank bluechew for sponsoring the podcast. Let's, uh, let's talk about the match here. It's uh it is a main event. It's a big deal to be in the main event. Uh, the show does 255,000 buys on pay-per-view. It's the third highest of the year at this point behind the Rumble Whoa. mania. Really? Uh, it beats SummerSlam dude, which I can't really. Believe. Whoa. Uh, and to your point, it's not a long match. And again, to remind everybody, it's John Cena, the WWE champion defending against Mick Foley, Randy Orton, King Booker, and Bobby Lashley. And it goes 10 minutes and seven seconds. And uh, Meltzer would say, real good match, easily the best. Is Mrs. Foley's baby boy okay? Yeah, my uh, <laughs> my 
my beauty supply. I was looking for a bottle of water, but they're all empty. Uh, and then a yeah, couple bladder's working overtime today. You've chugged quite <laughs> a bit of water since you've been up. There. You got to stay hydrated when you're in another country. So, generally speaking, when WWE ends its pay per view shows 20 minutes before the three hour mark, and in most cases, they're shorter than anyone else who does pay per view. The great champion from the past here was JBL, and the ring announcer, Justin Roberts, ran a hilarious acceptance speech. JBL got his radio show plugged. His Fox News channel appearances plugged, and they talk about how he grew up dirt poor, just like every son of a successful banker, and the match was all action. Now, they tried to build a few spots for Cena Lashley since at the time that's what they were building for for the next pay-per-view, but it wasn't one of those blood and guts crazy performances for Foley since he was not the focal point, but he did right. fine. The big, yeah. ma- big spot of the match was Cena giving Lashley the FU through the ECW announcer's table. Booker gave Cena the axe kick, but Orton saved. Orton gave Cena the RKO, but Foley saved. And the place had a big baby face pop when Orton used the move on Cena. Foley hit the double arm DDT on Orton and pulled out Mr. Socko. However, Booker super kicked Foley and the finish of the match saw Orton give Foley a field goal kick. And then lastly, speared Orton. Cena then pinned Foley after an FU three and a half stars. So, hey, man, uh, not a bad gig. If you can get it, you're going to get great money for three matches a year, and it's a 10-minute match. Hey, and I'm been. only in it for three of those minutes. So uh, <laughs> Could have been worse. And I'm, and I'm resting uh, intermittently Yeah, between those three minutes. I, yeah, like I said, I felt like it was good. But, I, I, you know, I, I on paper, you're not giving your chance, self a chance to have that classic match just by the way it was uh, – book but when i brought it up to uh, you know two or three people who have been around uh, more regularly than me said that sounds good to me and i went okay okay and i was happy with it um the day before uh, this interesting little tidbit uh because the show was in houston i was in mexico attending the grand opening of a uh, early education uh childhood at early education center uh, that I had helped fund along with the Dalai Lama. Oh my God. Uh, so you talk about a tag team, brother. Uh, yeah. And the, the only thing I was hot about is they put his name first. And I know for a fact, Conrad, I donated more money than Dalai Lama did. So, uh, and who'd he ever beat? Yeah, really? No, yeah. Come on. Come on. And they actually misspelled my name too, but it was a really cool thing. I got to meet, uh, one of the children that I sponsored and it was, a. Uh, a nice, uh, I was in a cool looking, like white, crisp linen jacket. And I was about 300 even at the time, which is where I looked okay. You know, I looked okay. I looked like a large man, uh, but you know, like now I'm, I'm well over that. Uh, so I got to slim down at some point, get back into the good habits. But it was a really fun day. I was able to make it back to Houston that night. Uh, had that good, you know, match I was happy with. And at that point, unlike other times in my career where I didn't feel like I'd earned my money unless I was practically like crawling down the hallway, I was okay with putting it. I put it all out there in 2004 uh, at Backlash. I put it all out there against Edge uh, at Mania in 2006. Uh, we had the... Uh, the uh, match with uh, me edge and lita against uh funk tommy and tommy's uh 
Tommy Dreamer's wife. That was a wild and woolly affair. And then uh, Rick and I had a real wild and bloody confrontation in a SummerSlam. So I was okay, like, just being a role player in this one. Uh, title match. I hadn't been in a title match in a long time that I could recall. And I knew it was good. I knew it wasn't classic, but it was uh, it was a pretty good accounting of myself. And I said earlier, played to my strengths, avoided my weaknesses so that I wasn't like a glaring hole in that match. And I was uh, happy with it until the events of the next day. Uh, I mean, being, said, real good match, easily the best of the show. Uh, mm-hmm. But he thought maybe it was disappointing because it's yeah. the same as you. Yeah. But- yeah. Still three and a half stars, maybe with more time would have been a bigger deal, but you had a lot of stars in there and, and some of these folks are still doing big things now. I mean, look at the run Bobby Lashley's been on oh, great. Years later, still at the top of his game. That dude is ageless. Is he not? Yeah. I think he looks younger. Yeah. yeah. He he's found, uh, the fountain of youth Ponce. He must know the Ponce de Leon, de Leon uh, descendants because he's found that fountain of youth. He's he, <laughs> Benjamin Button of wrestling. Really. <laughs> Getting younger. Yeah. Uh, he's coming off the big WrestleMania appearance with Donald Trump. Uh, you had the history with Randy Orton. King Booker is obviously uh, a, a Hall of Famer. And John Cena, man, the franchise. And just to be rubbing up against those guys and, and, and being well-received and hearing the crowd has to feel pretty good. But in the back <laughs> of your mind, there is this, hey, what's going on with Chris thing? And then it all changes the next day. Of course, originally it was hyped as a federal investigation to continue the Vince McMahon death storyline. But once we understand that the Benoit family is no longer with us, the whole show changed into a yeah. Christmas memorial show instead. And just to remind everybody, we didn't know the circumstances at the time. Right. WWE wishes they had that one back. But sure. as the legend goes, at some point during the show, people started to suspect wait, maybe there was more to it than this. Uh, and, and listen, we've beat that up. Uh, I don't think we necessarily have to talk about it anymore, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's something that no one will really be able to discuss in a, in a, in a proper way. I think for Nancy and Daniel, um, right. I don't know, wrestling fans really just gravitate to talking about Benoit and I understand that, but Hey, woman did her thing too. And, and Daniel was a kid and, I don't know, man. There's no way to sort of put a bow on this. I'm just rambling at this point. Yeah, I had a situation uh, when I was in Bloomington, Indiana, my birthplace. and They've got a great club there called the Comedy Attic. And there was a guy sitting front row to the left of the stage wearing a shirt that says, I'm a Chris Benoit guy. And I said, oh, man, I know it's a free country. You should be able to wear what you want. But I think there's a point. And the point to me is now I can't look at that side of the yeah. crowd. So after a while, after about 10 minutes, I go, all right, listen, I got to address something going on. I said, you know, people can wear what they want. I said, but when you're wearing an I'm a Chris Benoit guy shirt, you have to realize he murdered a friend of mine. Now I can't look at this section of the crowd, which hurts the show. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to go to the back but so I don't have to see you and therefore I can give these people the show they deserve. And the thing is he went back, he wasn't mad at me. He was in tears uh, because he couldn't understand why that would upset anybody. And he did not want to make me angry. He wasn't doing it to be a wise ass. And 
Yeah, I'm generally pretty good given that I am an autism dad and I have a son on the spectrum, although he's doing phenomenal. Oh, my God. Maybe uh, we'll have him come in and play some guitar on a future show because the gains this guy has made, uh, it's, it's really inspiring. Uh, but I'm really good at picking out people who need a little extra time, and this may have been one of them. So he didn't just bail out and say, screw you. He stuck around for the meet and greet. He did and He didn't yell at me. He was, he had tears in his eyes. And I said, yeah, it's, I can't remember. I said, so you have to understand. And I laid it out to him, you know, that if you're wearing something that distracts and puts me in a situation where I can no longer look at a third of the audience, that hurts the show. And that's why I had to put you back there. And he understood. And I said, you know, you know, I brought up the part about the, the murder. And then, so to this day, it's unfortunate. Yeah, over the past few days in Australia, I signed the Backlash uh, DVD, which actually has Chris on the cover. He had a great match. He always had great matches. Um, but man, ah, wow. Just a really, really, really tragic situation that set our business back for a while because nobody wanted to do business with pro wrestlers for quite a while. Well, we appreciate you guys uh, checking us out every week here on Folius Pod. The first one we haven't taped in person. I know. As far away as humanly possible. I've never even talked to someone in Australia at the other, time. Other side of the globe. My goodness. Do you think it suffered? Honestly? No, I think this was fun. I had a good time. How about you? I still, I, I really enjoyed it. I still like being in there. I still like being in there. Uh, so we'll do that uh, next week. I'll be in the studio, but I'm so glad we had this opportunity. One of the things you gave me when we first met up and uh, made the commitment to do this, you gave me the the, the portable ring light, which I am yep. using. Let's see what it would look like without the portable ring light. You ready? Yep. Oh, yeah, you can't do that. Actually, it doesn't look that bad. <laughs> Some people probably think it looks better. Uh, yeah, it doesn't look too bad. But we've got natural sunshine coming in. We do, uh, but I, I've been using these, uh, ring lights for my, uh, cameos. Bad news is today, it, uh, because I came in and the time difference, I, I knocked out the four uh, videos that were, uh, ready and, uh, I do not have a cameo for you this time around. Hey, you know what? That's all good. Let me remind everybody. <laughs> this is not a plug. Definitely not a plug. It's information only cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley is where you too and get maybe the best cameo that a wrestling fan can get. Don't take my word for it. My man's got over 4,000 reviews. His average rating is five stars. His average is five stars. Go check it out. Cameo.com forward slash McFoley. And next week, Mick, we're going to be talking SummerSlam 1997. You against Hunter Hearst Helmsley. China's a ringside. We're back doing WWE pay-per-views in New Jersey. It's a big doggone deal. They got the big blue cage going to get nailed in your head. You're going to tear open, yeah. the shirt, reveal the heart. What a oh. big that this is in your 1997. And we're going to talk about it. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. I heard from so many people in Australia who are fans. I'm just happy that we're on there helping put smiles on faces, making days nice. And I will see you uh, in Alabama next week sooner rather than later and every Friday right here on Foley is Pod with Mick Foley. Have a nice day. Naked Mind Yoga plus Pilates is a brand new fitness and wellness studio owned and founded by Brandy Rhodes. 
The physical studio in Roswell, Georgia offers yoga and Pilates reformer classes, plus childcare for clients all under one roof. That is truly unique. And it makes Naked Mind the only yoga or Pilates studio of its kind in the entire Atlanta area. For those of you who aren't local to the Atlanta area, Naked Mind has an app. You can get moving with yoga and Matt Pilates classes led by Brandy and a hand-picked group of established yoga and Pilates instructors. It's a fantastic way to try yoga and get into a new fitness and wellness program. Yoga is good for the mind and the body making it one of the leading wellness practices in the world today. You can find the Naked Mind app on Apple and Android devices and enjoy $10 off your first month or retail when you use the code CONRAD10. Naked Mind plus Pilates online at NakedMindStudio.com. That's NakedMindStudio.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson here to tell you a little more about what AdFreeShows.com is all about. Get early ad-free access to more than a dozen of your favorite wrestling podcasts every single week, starting at just nine bucks. That's less than 20 cents an episode each month. And yes, you can listen to them all directly through Apple podcasts or your regular podcast apps. How easy is that? Ad-free shows also has thousands of hours worth of bonus content and docu-series like title chase, Eric fires back conversations with Conrad and the insiders. Plus new series like The Book with David Crockett, Monday Mailbags with Mike Kyoto and Nick Patrick, and a whole lot more. And you want to talk about early. You can't get any earlier than listening to the shows live. You can be a part of the live studio audience as we record the podcast. Plus ride shotgun alongside your favorite childhood heroes for live watch-alongs, Q&As, and other interactive experiences every single month. Come on now, see for yourself what thousands of other wrestling fans from around the world have discovered that adfreeshows.com is the best value in wrestling. Check it out today. And hey, when you do, the first week is completely free. Adfreeshows.com. <laughs> 